Well, in recent times, there's been a, a huge increase in our society's fascination with the supernatural, and that includes angels and demons. And we all, well, not all of us, but many of us might remember the popular 90s show, Touched by an Angel. And then there's a slew of demon-featuring horror movies today, and angels and demons seem hard to escape, especially in pop culture. And Satan's popularity has really been on the rise as well. Those in the world may not believe he actually exists, but they're happy to use him for entertainment purposes. Many Christians likewise share a fascination with angels and demons because they know they actually are real. Angels and demons, angels and demons rather, are mysterious characters. We know this entire spiritual realm exists that we can't see, and that's very intriguing. You know, who are they? What are they like? How many of them are there? What do they do? What's their purpose? How much power do they have? All these questions apply equally to Satan. Is he really real? What can he do? What can't he do? What's he really like? Christians eventually are going to ask these questions. And the Bible is not silent. It adds to the intrigue, though, because the Bible does talk about angels and demons, but never directly in the sense that it's a subject of Scripture. Whenever angels and demons are mentioned, they're always incidental to some other topic. The author is talking about something else, and they're, they're mentioned alongside. They're never really the, the chief topic of revelation. The Bible assumes their existence. It's really not concerned with telling people all there is to know about angels and demons. But that being said, there's still a lot we can learn in the Bible about angels and demons. Though every question cannot be answered, we can identify who they are, what they do. We can respond accordingly, and that's our goal this evening. We're lesson number five in this little basic Bible doctrine series. It's the doctrine of angels and demons, also known as demonology. Really, before we get to the doctrines of man and sin and salvation, some big ones coming up, it's as good as place as any, though, to insert what the Bible says about these other beings. They're obviously lower than God, but higher than man. And the Bible says something about them. But I don't think there's any other area of doctrine where pop culture's views have so infiltrated the church. Many Christians, and maybe some of you even tonight, might find what you thought you knew or what you believed about angels and demons really came more from TV and movies than the Bible. But our goal is to be guided by Scripture, find out what the Bible does say. And not just to fill our minds, we do want to know what the, what the Word says about angels and demons. It's fair game, it's in the Word. I want to know that. And we want to seek truth everywhere it's found in the Word. I want to find out what the Bible says, that we might rightly think about them and also rightly respond. What is the proper response to these beings that exist that we can't see? Like I said before, we don't want to go overboard, but don't want, also don't want to ignore them. What's the right relationship, if you can say that, believers are to have with these spirit beings? We're, we'll find that out as well. So, there's two parts. Part one, angels. Part two, demons. Pretty simple. Now, let's begin, though, just kind of a Bible study on Angels. Starting with this, who they are. Who they are. And the word for angel in Hebrew simply means messenger or one who is sent and obviously carries their primary function. Angel carries the same meaning in Greek. Angels are primarily divine messengers are sent by God for some reason. They're also referred to at times as sons of God, holy ones, the heavenly host. Now, they're not just messengers, but that's, that's the title that became known, uh, their the primary title. 
When we think about some characteristics of these spirit beings, these messengers, you know, first, they are spirit beings. The Bible teaches that angels exist in the spiritual realm that cannot be seen, and that unless our eyes are opened, we can't see them. Hebrews 1.14 refers to them all as ministering spirits. Colossians 1.16 says they belong to the invisible realm. And then 2 Kings 6.17 is a really interesting passage. It shows our eyes must be open to see them. You have Elisha and his servant is afraid because the Arameans have surrounded their encampment to, to kill them. And they're, they're surrounded by the enemy army and Elisha tells them, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays and the Lord opens his eyes and he sees all around them. It says the mountains were filled with horses and chariots of fire. And this was referring to the a heavenly host. The heavenly army was there to fight for them. But in, until his eyes were opened, he had no knowledge of their presence. Now, being spiritual beings, though, angels are also not subject to death as we think of it. It's very interesting. Luke 20, verse 36, Jesus said, and he's talking about resurrected believers, but he says they cannot even die anymore because they're like the angels. What does death even mean for a non-physical being? With the separation of body and soul, what is death for a spiritual being? At least when it comes to death as we think of it, angels can't die. They have no body and soul to be separated. They can't have an eternal death, a judgment, but that's uh, something we'll talk about later. On occasion, angels may take on a visible form so as to communicate with men. It's always a mystery as to what this is, what type of body they have. It's just mystery. We, we don't know. In the grand scheme of things, it's relatively rare. It's very rare that, that they are actually seen. When it happens, angels either appear in glory, such that those who see them are struck with fear, uh, but occasionally, they're not even recognized as angels. They appear as men. You think, for example, of the angels who visited Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the angels who were in the empty tomb after Jesus rose. And there are many other examples. But usually, they do appear in a, in a form, a type of glory, such that the first thing they say when people see them is, do not be afraid. They have to say that because people are very afraid and they need to like, I've got a message. You need to calm down and listen to what I'm saying. But they appear in a more glorious form than, than mankind. That, that makes sense because angels are a higher order of being than man. Man is above the animals. Angels are above man. They know more than man, but they're not omniscient. They're more powerful than man, but they're not omnipotent. They move more freely than man, but they're not omnipresent. But another mystery in Scripture does reveal that in the future, man will be exalted above the angels. Hebrews 2.7 confirms that humans are a lower order of being than angels. Second Peter 2.11 mentions angels are greater in might and power. But we learn in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that, that the saints will, will judge the angels, will pass judgment on the angels. Speaking of the fallen ones, of course. Again, with these Bible studies, I'm quickly rifling through passages. You can take notes and turn if you're quick, but we have a lot more to go through. But lastly, we know angels were created by God. The scripture never directly reveals whether they also were made in God's image. There's some reasons to believe 
They are image bearers, but it just never says. So we can't likewise say. But they still are moral beings. They're capable of doing good and evil. And for those who do sin, there's no plan of redemption. No, no plan of redemption that's ever revealed. But Psalm 148 verses 2 and 5 calls on the angels and the heavenly hosts to praise God because it says God commanded and they were created. They're, they're creations of God. And Job 38, 6 and 7 teach that, that God created the angels, the heavenly hosts, before the rest of creation. In fact, it really seems that God made the spiritual realm, the heavenly host, before the physical realm. And they were created almost like the first witnesses to bear witness to the rest of God's acts of creation that they might praise him. That's a picture you get from Job 38, 6 and 7. But like we said, for those who fall short of their, their glory, there's no hope for them. Hebrews 2.16 says, Assuredly, God does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And in the mystery of God's grace, there's a plan of redemption for mankind, not for angel kind. Second Peter 2.4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Like we said, for those who have fallen, they, they seem to remain in this perpetually lost state, simply awaiting a final judgment. Now, let's talk about classification. The Bible does not give a full-fledged taxonomy of angels, but you look at verses like Ephesians 6, 12, and it appears that, that there's some order to them, different order or classes or ranks. I think there's some truth to this, but we only know what's revealed. That's all we got to go by, what's revealed in Scripture. But we can piece together a few things. There does appear to be angels who rule. We can learn this, at least in the fallen realm, Revelation 12, 7, Satan rules over the demons who are just other fallen angels. Also, Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's talking about angels. They're called rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's some level of rule amongst these spiritual beings. Here's a, one of the most interesting verses in the Bible, I think. Not most important, just most interesting. Daniel 10.13. Daniel 10.13. I'll just read it and I'll explain the context a little bit. But it says that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, it doesn't seem like that interesting a verse, but you read it in its context. We don't have time for it, but I'll summarize it. You realize it's not a human prince that they're talking about. In fact, the one talking is not a human as well. This is a message from the angel Gabriel to Daniel he was sent from God to give a special message to Daniel, a revelation. But he says this figure called the Prince of Persia withstood him for 21 days. So Gabriel was prevented from giving this message to Daniel for 21 days because the Prince of Persia withstood him. And that's, not, that's up until Michael showed up and, and took, took over basically and let, let freed him up. This is a very interesting passage that just ever so slightly lifts the curtain on hidden spiritual warfare. You know, 
this prince of Persia is not a human figure. It's speaking of, of a ruler, a, a demonic ruler who had some sort of domain over the Persian kingdom. And it appears both angels and demons have some level of domain among the nations. And so this is referring to some powerful demon who is likely influencing and directing the Persian rulers to oppose God and God's people. But God dispatched one of his own angels to turn them back. And so it's Michael. And later he is revealed to be a holy angel who ministers chiefly on behalf of Israel. He's like Israel's angel. Now, our knowledge here is very limited. It's only limited to revelation. We have to beware speculation. But it leads us to at least believe that as we see major events play out in the world stage amongst the nations, especially when God's people are persecuted, at the very least, we would not be surprised to someday in the kingdom learn that spiritual warfare was behind it. That as nations rise up against nations and oppose God's people, that a hidden spiritual warfare with angels and demons is at play. But we can't go any further than that. Now, speaking of Michael, he's called an archangel or great prince. Again, that word prince, ruler, these are titles attributed to angels throughout. Michael is the only archangel we know of from scripture. It appears to be the highest rank. He does appear to be the most powerful of the angels. And his mission is primarily just to protect national Israel especially during the tribulation. Revelation 12, 7 through 8 says, There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And Daniel ten thirteen refers to Michael as your prince. He's speaking to Israel. Michael's your prince, meaning your, your ruler in the heavenly places. He was the angel over them, over their domain. And Daniel 12.1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Speaking of future time. It's again, very interesting. We, we only get these every now and then, veil lifted here, veil lifted there. Just get little glimpses into what's going on. Uh, but more, uh, vastly more than we know. You also have Gabriel, though I mentioned Gabriel. He does appear to be a special messenger angel. He's always, whenever he pops up, he's always associated with revealing God's message about his kingdom and his king. Gabriel is the one who explains and reveals the events of the 70 weeks, the incarnation, and the coming of John the Baptist. He's just a revealing angel. For example, Daniel 9, 21 through 22 Daniel says, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And he goes on. You also have Luke 1, 26 and 27. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, and to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, and you know the rest. So, there appears to be different ranks, different orders of angels, different types of angels in the heavenly host. This is only added to by a couple more categories known as the cherubim and the seraphim. These heavenly beings appear to be divine attendants. 
The problem is scripture never explains their relation to the other angels. But it appears they're part of the heavenly host. And their focus is on worshiping God and protecting his glory, almost shielding his glory. Seraphim are only mentioned once, and they're depicted proclaiming the perfect holiness of God. Cherubim are mentioned a few times, and many speculate that they're the highest order of angelic being with indescribable power and beauty. And uh, Satan himself was described before his fall as, as an anointed cherub who covers uh, it appears to be of this rank, this class known as cherubim. But Isaiah 6, 1 through 3 gives us a depiction of these cherubim. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. I'm sorry, this is talking about seraphim. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there's a chance cherubim and seraphim are actually the same thing, but we can't say for sure. You might also remember it was a cherub, or I can't recall if it was multiple cherubim is the plural, who guarded the Garden of Eden after God expelled Adam and Eve. Also, Exodus 25, he instructed that a pair of cherubim were to be placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant with their wings almost shielding the mercy seat and the glory of God. You also have Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4. These cherubim keep showing up in these heavenly visions. They're the beings closest to God's throne. No one appears closer to God's glory than these heavenly beings. You know, a few other quick facts about the angels. It appears that all angels were created by God before the rest of creation, like I said. And we learn that they have no marriage, no institution of marriage. And therefore, we assume no procreation. And that means their numbers are fixed. It leads us to to wonder, how many are there? Revelation 5.11 says their numbers are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And the biblical writers use that language just to describe an innumerable amount. It's more than we can count, more than they could count. There's just a lot. However, that means millions, billions, trillions, who can really say? But that phrase is used in ancient Greek just to refer to more than can be counted. Also, when angels do manifest themselves physically, however they do that, I don't know. But whenever it happens, they're never recorded in the Bible taking on a female form. They always take on a male form. They always appear as men. Additionally, angels are never uh, described as having wings. Daniel 9.21, Revelation 14.6, do speak of them flying, that's what people have inferred. The only mention of wings is in connection to the the cherubim and the seraphim. And so, again, it's just left, you have to fill in some blanks somewhere. But Overall, though, the the most popular depiction of angels today as as a female form with wings is not biblical. Like that's not from scripture. Especially like a a baby angel with wings and diapers is definitely not biblical. You just just don't see that. Now, uh, let's a second section here. Let's talk about what they do, who they are, what they do. What are they? What are they up to? Well, angels, and especially the, the cherubim and the seraphim, for one, let's talk about in relation to God first, what they do in relation to God, because their function 
changes depending on their relationships. But in relation to God, they're depicted as just continually proclaiming the glory of God, the holiness of God. Many of them appear as divine attendants. They, they just worship God. That's part of their function. But they're also his servants. They're dispatched to do his bidding, whatever that is. And we just read Isaiah 6, 2 and 3. You can likewise read Revelation 5, Revelation 7. You get this picture. For example, Revelation 7, 11. It says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. These are holy angels, seem to spend a lot of their time worshiping God, but also doing his bidding. Now, in relation to Christ, what do they do? Well, just as angels minister to God around his throne, uh, we always see them very active around the ministry of Jesus. They seem to likewise carry out his will or God's will on behalf of the Son. I'll be quick here, but it, <clears throat> angels announced Christ's birth in Luke 1. They protected him in his infancy in Matthew 2. They ministered to him after his temptation in Matthew 4. They strengthened him at Gethsemane in Luke 22. They proclaimed his resurrection in Matthew 28. They attended his ascension in Acts 10, and they will return with him in the second coming, Matthew 25. And there's more. Christ is described as the head of the heavenly host. He's their commander of this heavenly army, so to speak. You recall, if he wanted to, he could have at any moment called down the heavenly host, and they could have very easily delivered him off the cross. Of course, that wasn't the Father's will. But angels appear to likewise be servants of Christ to do his bidding as well. And that makes sense. He is their head. Let's talk about in relation to believers. What do they do in relation to believers? Well, angels are called ministering spirits in relation to believers. And Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God sends them out to render some type of service for believers. They're tasked with helping God's chosen one. That could be sometimes providing physical protection, rescue, encouragement, direction. We, when, when the veil is lifted, the handful of times it is, Angels appear to be the means, often they're the means by which God is actually protecting and delivering his people. If it's not revealed, we would never know. We'd have no means of knowing these things, but we see it revealed a few times in scripture, just God uh, giving us a, a quick view under the hood as to some of his means for delivering his people. You know, for example, Psalm 34, 7 says poetically, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. But literally that happened several times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have like Acts 5.19. The apostles were imprisoned. And it says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and took them out. And also Acts 12.7, Peter was imprisoned again. It says, behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. That's the extreme end of intervention. And uh, 
And who knows how much more can be attributed to angels and when it comes to delivering, rescuing, providing a relief for God's people. Again, we, we, we can't, we, it can be fun to speculate, but we must beware too much. Uh, but it's useful to know that they're likely a major means of God in serving, delivering, helping, rendering aid to his people. Ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. What about for unbelievers, though? What do they do in relation to unbelievers? Well, angels announce and deliver forms of God's judgment. That's what we see them doing. I mean, several times they physically defeat the enemies of God's people. And in the future, after the final judgment, angels are the agents who are the ones literally casting the damned into the lake of fire. You can go back to Genesis 19. You find that it's a pair of angels who are the ones who destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We would say God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but that the means he used in this world to, to execute that judgment was a pair of destroying angels. Acts 12.23, the wicked Herod blasphemed the Lord. And it says, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with disease so that he died. And you read the account, he had what others would see as just, you know, a bad but otherwise normal disease. But the means, that the, the revealed means, the actual reason why it happened was a judgment that was rendered, came from God, but rendered and affected through an angel. That's Acts 12.23. Revelation 8, and really throughout, angels are used as the agents who are pouring out God's wrath on the earth. God's unleashing his wrath on the earth, but it's angels who are the ones who are doing it or, or causing the calamity. Second Kings 1935, uh, the, the Assyrians were about to destroy Jerusalem, but it says, then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. That's probably the most extreme, this side of final judgment, the most extreme deliverance by an angel. You also have Matthew 13, 40 through 42, which speaks of a future time. Where Christ said, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Angels always seem to have a big role, but most times we just can't see that role. Uh, but it can be said that they really step into the spotlight again uh, in that tribulation period uh, before Christ returns. Well, a few notes, a few quick notes of application before we move on to talk about demons, though, as we think about this. For one, it's very interesting. You know, Hebrews 2.16 and other texts makes clear that there's no plan of redemption for fallen angels. So when these holy angels sin, that there's no hope for them. Fallen angels or demons that they're under the wrath of God. There's no hope of restoration. They know that. And it makes us wonder, is that unfair? Is that unjust? Is God unjust for making no plan of salvation for the fallen angels? The answer to that is No. Right? These, these fallen angels who've rebelled and left their abode, they, they 
They're, they're going to get precisely what they deserve, a perfectly just judgment. And they're not entitled to God's grace. They're not entitled to God's redemption. I mean, that's what makes it grace. They just get pure justice. And it just makes us think and pause. Like God could have done the exact same thing to humanity and he'd be perfectly just. He never had to send Christ. He could have left us in rebellion and just gave us a final judgment. And he'd be doing no wrong. He could have left us with no plan of redemption or hope whatsoever. And he'd be perfectly righteous to do so. But he didn't. Now, that doesn't mean man is better. We have no reason to boast. In fact, humans, we learned, are lower than the angels. I guess you could say if anyone merited some sort of plan of redemption, it, wouldn't it be a higher order of being? But no, he, he left the angels with no hope, no redemption, only justice. But he just chose in the mystery of his grace to set his affection, his, his love, his redeeming love on mankind, on Adam's race, and made a plan of redemption for them. Even sent his son Christ, like the book of Hebrews says a lot, to come to earth taking on the form of a man, become lower than the angels for a time. Here's Christ who made the angels become lower than them to redeem the sons of Adam. All this goes to say, you know, this, that the picture of grace we get in salvation, it's, it's truly grace. We should never take for granted grace. There really is no boasting. And we should marvel at God's grace. It's so undeserved. Do the angels give us a picture of pure justice? And whenever you're, you're tempted to say God is not fair in salvation, just look to the angels and be reminded, you sure you want fair? You're sure you want only fairness? Because that's what the angels get, pure justice. And for them, there's no redemption. Now, speaking of, of the salvation, though, it's also really interesting to think of the holy angels, the unfallen angels. They live in a state of sinlessness. We often wonder after salvation, like, what's it really going to be like? It's hard for us to imagine because we have the flesh still. We, we just know sin all too well. And can you really imagine sinlessness? That will happen when we're perfected with glorified bodies and God removes even the desire, any sort of desire for sin. And we become free in righteousness, truly, like the angels are. But just think about the angels. You get a, a little glimpse of, of our future glory. Right? They honor God at all times. They obey God at all times. They obey God immediately, without question, without complaint, without talking back. They just carry out his will. They're humble servants. They just do what they were created to do without any gripe, whether great or small. They know God. They worship God. They serve God. And they give us, in a sense, just a little picture of Again, what we will be like in glory, because scripture says in many respects that in glory, we are made like the angels. And uh, that, that's just compelling food for thought. And already, anytime we think of future glory, we know ultimately we're conformed to Christ's image. They're not our mediator. We don't worship them. But a compelling thought, what's to stop us from aspiring to that level of, of righteousness and glory now? We know we will fall short because of the flesh, but... As we think of future glory, our heavenly citizenship, it's always meant to be a, a motive for us to excel still more and put on Christ and, and pursue that, that pure worship that we will know that the angels currently know. Now, the fact that angels, however, don't receive special attention in Scripture also teaches us a lesson. Remember, they're always incidental to something else, some other teaching. I think that just tells us God does not want us to pay too much attention to angels. 
We don't act like they don't exist. That's wrong. But we're not to be obsessed with them. In other words, we're not to worship angels. We're not to pray to angels. We're not to be overly obsessed with angels. I mean, I think they're unseen for a reason. Because God wants us just to focus on him and his will. If God let us see everything the angels did for us, we would probably be too tempted to worship them. Just like John in the book of Revelation. He sees that this amazing vision at the hand of a messenger angel, even the great apostle John can't help himself in a moment of weakness. He falls down so as to worship the angel. And the angel says, get up, worship God alone. I mean, if God let us see all the angels are doing all the time, it probably wouldn't be good for us when it comes to worshiping God alone. I think he knows this because they are mighty, glorious beings. But no, God wants us to focus and worship on him and his son alone. Don't forget, in the book of Colossians, in ancient Colossae, angel worship was one of their big problems. One of the heresies at the Colossian church was angel worship. Now, as fascinating as angels might be, we have to avoid being consumed by them. That's why in this study, we just say what the Bible says, leave it at that. We don't need to go really any further. We're bound by God's revelation. It can be fun to spitball, think, speculate, but uh, we, we won't take it any further seriously. But a proper response is just praise God for the angels. Thank God for the angels and all the unseen service they may have rendered to you. You've no, no, no idea about. But in a very real sense, they minister to believers. They protect believers. It was angels who shut the lions' mouths when Daniel was thrown into the pit. And it was angels who delivered the apostles from prison and harm. And surely there have been occasions for all believers when they've been protected or or ministered to by angels without knowing it. And granted, we never know when this happens. We don't have eyes to see when this happens. There's no spiritual gift or sense to know when this happens. When people who say they do, they don't. They're just expressing some feeling, but you have no actual knowledge of this. It's just not revealed. These are things not revealed. You can speculate, but you have to be careful of that. The the proper response, whether it was just God's direct intervention, whether it was an angel, or whether it was just you, it's praise God no matter what. I mean, the the ultimate response is go to the source, no matter the mechanism or the means of our help, our support, our protection. We know it's all coming from God anyway. He is the one who gets all the glory. We can't boast, nor can an angel. We give glory to God. So whether seen or unseen, Give thanks, give glory to God. All praise, all glory goes to God. And I think we can safely say the holy angels wouldn't want it any other way. Even if you were able to see something they did for you, they would tell you, like the angel told John, get up, worship God alone. Even though, even though I did this great thing for you, worship God alone. So seen or unseen, doesn't really matter. Our worship, our thanks, our praise always goes to God alone. All right, let's get into part two now. Part two is on the demons, the fallen angels. Let's uh, switch gears. Study of angel and demons always goes together naturally, and that's because we're still talking about angels. Let's talk about that same outline, who they are. Who they are. It's just the word demon. It's just the name given to angels who were created perfect, but they fell into sin and rebellion along with Satan. Popular imagination associates demons with anything occult, like vampires, Werewolves, ghosts, monsters. But that's not all that's, I think we can safely say, nonsense. 
Now, now we know the supernatural realm is very real, but there's only, as far as we know, there's only one type of being, evil being in the supernatural realm, and that's fallen angels or demons. And they are very real. Demons were created good along with the rest of the angels in the beginning. But when Satan rebelled against God and fell into sin sometime before Genesis 3, it appears he led some of the other holy angels to fall with him. Revelation 12.4 indicates that one-third of the holy angels fell along with Satan and followed him into his rebellion. And it's now this host, this host of fallen angels, that's all we mean by demons. You know, the current state, most demons share the same current state as Satan. They've been cast out of God's throne room, his special presence in heaven. They're not there with the cherubim in the throne room of God. But look, they still have access to the heavenly realm. That being said, just like Satan, that they're focused uh, on the earth in their rebellion. They won't be permanently expelled from the heavenly realm until the tribulation. But seeing that demons right now are under Satan's leadership and authority, uh, their demise will follow his. Job 1.6 gives us one of those uh, peaks behind the curtain. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And sons of God is often a term used to refer to angels. And these appear to be fallen angels with Satan presenting themselves to God in the heavenly realm. It's not until Revelation 12, 7 through 9, that Satan and his angels are permanently cast to the earthly realm which is one of the reasons why the tribulation period is so bad. Now, there are some demons who, after the fall, practiced extreme wickedness on the earth. And for this reason, God confines them to a place called Tartarus, 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, Tartarus is like death row for demons, the worst offenders, where they can't escape, and they're just bound there waiting for final judgment. Now, Tartarus itself is only mentioned once in the Bible, but most appear, believe, and it appears equivalent to a place called the Abyss, which is mentioned nine times in the New Testament. Every time it's pictured as just this holding cell, death row, you can't escape for the most wicked offenders of the demons, the most powerful demons. They're bound there until final judgment. They're taken out. If God let them loose on the earth, they would cause too much devastation. 2 Peter 2.4 says this, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And the mention of angels here is indefinite. This is not a reference to all the fallen angels, just a subset of them. It's very similar to Jude 6 and 7. He says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. There's, there's a big rabbit trail you could go down uh, with that teaching, but the point is, uh, he's talking about 
you know, categories of demons who before some before the flood, some later who interfered in the affairs of earth, whether, uh, either through direct intervention or demon possession, but committed such acts of depravity and wickedness upon the earth that God bound them, he says, in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. They're just bound, they're kept there until the end. Again, the abyss is always associated with the place where extremely wicked demons are bound until final judgment. The fact that not all demons are kept there is evident from Luke 8.31. If you recall in Luke 8.31, there's demons who beg Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. They seem to know they've got a final judgment coming. The last thing they want is to be cast into the abyss because they're just reduced to no activity at that point. You know, from 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6, it seems evident that the worst of the fallen angels are kept in the abyss for the duration of human history. That, that gives us an interesting and compelling correlation with Revelation 9. Because in Revelation 9, it's in the tribulation and it pictures the abyss being opened up and those angels released on earth for a time during the tribulation and the great tribulation. Really, that's uh, one of the, the primary reasons that the latter half of the tribulation is so indescribably, indescribably bad. For a short time, God allows that these most powerful and wicked demons to unleash hell on earth, unleash their wrath on earth. It's a form of his wrath. He's sovereign over it. And uh, that seems to make perfect sense. That's what they would do. Thankfully, that's not till the very end. Now, regarding their future state, you know, interestingly, fallen demons, they know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They know Jesus is the Savior. They know he's the Messiah. Like we said before, that they, they know there's no plan of redemption for them. They have no hope. Christ's death on the cross did nothing for them. It can't save them. They're not humans. Demons are without hope. They're only going to find Christ's justice. You see in Mark 1, 23 and 24, it says there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out to Jesus. This is now the demon speaking. Now, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see that in many interactions where the demon speaks. They recognize Jesus right away. We know exactly who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to destroy us? They, they know what's coming. They know who Jesus is. Very, very interesting uh, things that are revealed by the demon possessed in the Gospels. James 2.19 also mentions, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. His point is just, you know, he's talking about the nature of true salvation there. Just knowing that God exists doesn't save you. Knowing the gospel doesn't save you. Knowing the data, like the demons know the gospel. They know God, they know Jesus, but they've not submitted to him as king. They've rebelled and they have no hope. Uh, we must be different though. Thankfully, we do have a hope. We must bow. You know, like Satan, fallen angels were conquered on the cross. The war is over, but they keep up the fight until they're finally done with. Like we've said a couple of times, demonic activity seems like it will, will intensify during the tribulation before Christ returns. Their ultimate end, however, is a place called the lake of fire, 
which scripture teaches was originally created for Satan and his fallen angels. In Colossians 2.15 says, when Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And after his victory on the cross, Christ disarmed these rulers and authorities. Talking about demons there. Matthew 25, 41, where Christ said, speaking of his return, it says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That the eternal place, the lake of fire, was originally prepared as a place of separation and judgment for Satan and his fallen angels. And as man fell, now that's where you go too for those who do not know the Lord. Again, I mentioned Matthew eight twenty nine, where the demon cried out, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Thankfully, there will be a time. The time is coming when God will judge evil on the earth and in the heavens. And for those in the heavens, these demons, they will be judged, removed from God's holy presence forever. Now, a few characteristics here before we move on. Characteristics and the characteristics and classifications of demons seem to be roughly the same as angels. They are personal beings. They're spirit beings. In fact, they're often described as spirits or evil spirits. And being in the spiritual realm, multiple demons apparently have no problem indwelling the same individual. You know, Matthew 8, 16, they're referred to as spirits. Acts 19, they're referred to as evil spirits. Matthew 10, 1, they're referred to as unclean spirits. Luke 8, 30, you find how a legion of demons inhabited one person. Now, just like angels, demons are wiser and more powerful than man. But make no mistake, they're not omniscient. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. Uh, they're limited in their power, their knowledge, their ability. A little glimpse of their power, though, if you remember, uh, the man will encounter pretty soon, but the man possessed by a legion of demons by the tombs, he had a supernatural strength. Mark 5, 3-4, says of this man, he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, no one was strong enough to subdue him. This man possessed by a legion of demons had appeared a type of supernatural strength. It should be noted, though, that the demons appear to be ruled over and commanded by Satan. The Bible does view all demonic activity as an extension of Satan's activity. Because at the end of the day, there's only one fallen angel, Satan. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's, he's only one being. And it's often been said, he's probably picking on world leaders and, and top religious leaders with his attacks. Uh, uh, pretty safe to say the actual being of Satan has never wasted his time on you. But his demons have likely when it comes to afflicting and, and tempting believers and so forth. Matthew twelve twenty four, Satan is called the ruler of demons. Matthew twenty five forty one, it says the devil and his angels. 
Revelation 12, 7, likewise, says the dragon and his angels. He does appear to be the commander of the heavenly host of fallen angels. You know, a few other facts here. The Bible identifies demons as being the source of idols, cults, and false religions in the world. That to worship an idol or a false deity is akin to worshiping a demon. They're the ones who've inspired counterfeit religions, even counterfeit signs and wonders. Very possible, just that they come from demons. Demons empower falsehood and lead people anywhere but in the direction of the truth. You remember uh, back in the Exodus, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he has a few signs he's going to perform to authenticate he came from God. This is why Pharaoh should listen to him. And the first sign was to take his staff, throw it to the ground, it becomes a snake. Remember that? And he did it. That's pretty amazing. But it actually goes on to say that Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing. How do you think that happened? That was a power of a demon. And God showed his supremacy as Moses' snake ate all the other ones. And God will always show his supremacy over the power of the demons, but, and eventually their power ran out. They hit a wall. They could do no more. God's power is always greater. But there are real powers doing real things in, in the physical realm, signs and wonders that are not of God. They're just of demons, but very real. But Deuteronomy 32, 17 speaks of false worship. It says they sacrificed to demons who were not gods, to gods whom they've not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You know, false worship is really demon worship. Psalm 106, 35 through 37. It says they mingled with a nation and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Speaking of Israel, it says they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Now, the Israelites, when they fell into that, they never were worshiping demons, they thought. They were worshiping gods, like Molech. But really, who's behind these gods? Demons. Same thing, 1 Corinthians 10, 19-20. Paul talking about eating meat, sacrificed to idols. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. A consistent picture behind false worship or false religions, false ideologies and worldviews, occultic practices and so forth. uh, There's going to be a demon behind there somewhere. We can't see it. We wouldn't know it unless it's revealed. Uh, But we have enough to know, especially since we know the enemy brokers and lies um, that counterfeit religions movements are going to be demon inspired. Well, let's, let's briefly talk about what they do. We're kind of paralleling who they are now, what they do when it comes to fallen angels. Good angels are ministering spirits sent to assist believers. Demons are pretty much the same thing, just the opposite. You know, they have a different master. They're allied to Satan. They're controlled by him. They, they now want to harm and hinder people. In particular, they aggressively oppose the truth. They aggressively oppose the truth. And scripture identifies demons as being a major source of falsehood and false doctrine. Satan himself opposes God's word from the beginning. Demons follow suit. They're going to oppose the truth. 
1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. And Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says that in, in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. James 3.15, likewise, says this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, speaking of false teaching. So they aggressively oppose the truth. They also aggressively oppose salvation. Now, at times, Satan and demons appear to be, again, the means by which unbelievers are hindered from coming to salvation. Right? You, you've got an unbeliever you love, you share the gospel with them, you've planted the gospel seed in their heart, but they don't believe. You don't know why. It seemed like everything was going so well. They seemed interested, but then they just turn the other direction. Why? Don't know. But it's possible a, a demon had something to do with it. Now, Matthew thirteen nineteen, the parable of the seed and the soils. And Christ said, when anyone hears the word of of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. There's more to that. We'll get to that in Matthew's gospel, but you see that the role Satan and his demons have in in hindering, somehow rendering ineffective the gospel of the kingdom in someone's heart. 2 Corinthians 4.4 likewise says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. In First Thessalonians 3, 5, and Paul said, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was concerned. Thessalonians, brand new church plant, new believers. He planted, left. He writes 1 Thessalonians very soon thereafter. He's like, I wonder what's going on with them. Have they all fallen away? What's going on? Fearing that the tempter may have tempted them. and They all would have fallen away and his labor would have been in vain. Because to show you though, that's something he does. Something Satan and demons do. They will tempt a new believer. And for those who aren't truly saved, they can cause them to fall away. So they aggressively oppose the truth, they oppose salvation, and they also oppose believers. Satan and demons can tempt believers to sin. They can persecute them. They can discourage them. They can hinder their usefulness to God. But you have to remember they're under God's strict authority. They can never make believers sin. They cannot steal their salvation. They cannot possess believers need to be encouraged by what they can't do. They cannot make believers sin. They cannot steal their salvation. They cannot possess them. And we did learn Job 1 and 2, they could physically afflict. If God allowed it, they can physically afflict. They can also, uh, uh, in a sense, torment believers, even as God's agents. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And Paul said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know the exact identity of this. Many believe it was a a demon-possessed person in the Corinthian church who afflicted Paul. But the point is that God was using some demonic force just to humble Paul, 
Couldn't take his salvation, couldn't make him sin, could tempt, could afflict, trouble. That's something they can't do. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It says, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This applies to Satan, but it would apply to, to his demons as well. These commands, be sober, be alert. I mean, if Satan and demons pose no threat whatsoever, those would be meaningless commands. We wouldn't need to be sober or alert. But we need to be watchful because there's a threat. Now, they, again, they can't steal your salvation, but they can hinder your usefulness to God by tempting you into sin. They can persecute. They can discourage. In, this verse, in these verses in particular, they seem to be responsible for the experiences of suffering of believers. If God allows, they can bring suffering. And have you ever heard of a Christian who stumbles in their faith or maybe doubts God because of suffering? It isn't suffering this great affliction that can mess with the faith of people, that can test and try the faith of people. That's one way demons can afflict. Now, the solution is nothing supernatural. It's just have faith in God. Trust God. Do what he says. If you're just stuck to God and his word, Satan and demons will have no power over you, no influence over you. They, again, they broker in lies. It's a truth war. So if you just cling to the truth, and stay steadfast to what's true, which we know in his word, you're safe, you're alert, you're sober. You will, you will pass that test. But believe God, believe the truth, obey the truth, and you will uh, defend against Satan's flaming arrows. Now, when it comes to unbelievers, though, demons have a, a far greater power. In addition to opposing their salvation, Demons can afflict and they can possess unbelievers. And through possession, demons can inflict physical limitations, physical harm, disease, and suffering upon unbelievers. Now, the Bible makes clear not all sickness comes from demon possession. It never tells us how much, but it does make clear not all comes from demon possession. And we never know how to discern whether an affliction comes from a demon or not. It's only ever shows up in the Gospels. It was intensified around the, the coming of Christ. We're never given eyes to discern if this person's epilepsy is from just epilepsy or from a demon. We don't have eyes to see. But the fact remains, according to the Gospels, they, they can cause physical affliction. Like Luke 13, they cause physical deformity. Matthew 9, they cause muteness. Luke 9, severe seizures. Mark 5, self-mutilation. As a result of their possession. Now our time is pretty much running short. But I'm going to squeeze in here. When you're covering the doctrine of demons. Under that is Satan. And so let's talk a little bit about Satan himself. Before we finish up here. A little extra teaching on the chief of the demons. Satan himself. You know all demons are simply fallen unholy angels. And same goes for Satan. And so pretty much everything we just learned about demons is going to apply to the devil. But he does stand out as the leader of this angelic rebellion against God. And scripture has plenty to say about him directly. 
And so we're going to be brief here. Again, our time's almost up. But let's add a little bit here under the study of demons about Satan himself. And, you know, for the sake of time, I'm going to mostly focus on what he does. What he does. We can add here, he aggressively opposes God. In his own way, he aggressively opposes God. Revelation 12, 7, he's the one who leads a revolt in heaven. Matthew 4, Satan is the one who comes and tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 9, Satan is the one who energizes this figure known as the Antichrist. It says of him, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says he sins from the beginning. Revelation 12 says he attacks God's people. So he aggressively opposes God. He aggressively opposes truth in his own way. And we read 2 Corinthians 4, how he blinds the minds of the unbelieving, that they can't see the glory of God in the gospel. We read Matthew 13, 19. He's the one who snatches away truth from the hearts of the unbelieving. 1 Timothy 4 says he spreads deceitful doctrine. He's the ultimate source of all falsehood in the world. In Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's the devil who's the one who's sowing tares among the wheat, which is a way of saying he's the one behind false converts in the church. Ultimately, his power and deception is behind false believers to dilute and divide the church. And we see how Luke 22, 3, Satan entered Judas and he, leaves, uh, he, can, he can lead unbelievers into sin to oppose God, the truth, and his ways. And we can add he aggressively opposes believers. He can't steal your salvation, but he can oppose, through his minions, believers as well. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he tempts. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, he hinders the work, the progress of the gospel. Ephesians 6, 11, he schemes. You want to talk conspiracy theories, they're all true. Satan's behind them all. Like every theory you might have, who knows if it's really true on earth, but in the grand scheme, there's an ultimate conspiracy theory against God, and Satan's behind it all. He's scheming, actively scheming against God and his ways, in, in ways we can't even fully see. Revelation 12.10, he accuses. Revelation 2.10, he persecutes. You know, Job really, uh, if you read Job 1 and 2, it really goes a lot to, to lift the curtain and show what he can do to uh, believers. If you read Job 1 and 2, and you see the affliction that happened to Job, Satan was behind it. We learn Satan caused the raiding Sabaeans to destroy Job's livestock and kill his servants. Satan caused fire to come from heaven to kill more of his livestock and servants. Satan caused the, the Chaldeans to rob Job's camels and kill more servants. And Satan caused the death of all of Job's 10 children by causing wind to crush their house. He did all of that. God allowed him. And then Satan himself afflicted Job physically with terrible suffering. And if God permitted him, Satan could have killed Job. Now you can kill the body, can't touch the soul. Again, you have to understand the biblical limits. Satan could not make, one thing he really couldn't do, he could not make Job sin or curse God. Job had to do that all himself, all by himself. And Satan could use his power 
externally and his, his belief was he could afflict Job so much that by doing so, he could get Job to sin and curse God. Satan could not actually make him do that. Job had to do that all by himself. He can still do that. He can afflict as, as God sovereignly allows. But like Job, who did not sin or curse God, that's, we must do the same. Satan has his limits. He's on God's leash. All angels and demons are. And God's sovereign uses them for his greater purposes. Satan's primary domain in this present age is the earth, because he's devoted his energy to opposing God's people. But again, you also have to keep in mind, this is all under God's sovereign allowance. He's allowed Satan to have power in this age for his greater purposes, but he will bring it all to an end. He will judge. He will end all evil and right all wrongs. In the meantime, though, in this age, the Bible paints paints quite a picture of Satan's dominion over the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God of this world. Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Luke 4, 5 through 7 says he has full possession of the earth's domain. Hebrews 2.14 says he has power over death. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in his power. These verses are all talking about now, this age. is after the cross, obviously before Christ returns, but in this age, Satan is still described as the God of this world, the ruler of this world, the leader of this world. Now you need to understand that at the cross, he was judged. He was conquered and defeated. Absolutely. His judgment has been rendered. But the execution of that judgment where he's finally done away with is future. And God, he's a defeated foe, uh, but God has still allowed him to persist until Christ returns. The administration of his penalty is still future. And so although, although defeated, he still has a certain power. But thankfully, scripture looks forward to his final and ultimate judgment when he can deceive no more. And that's his ultimate sin, to deceive. But Hebrews 2.14 encourages us. It says, since the children share in flesh and blood, Speaking of Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That although Satan persists, his greatest power is death, we don't fear death anymore. Uh, Christ has conquered death with life. Romans 16 20. In Paul's benediction, he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that's our desire as well. There's a lot more to the doctrine of Satan in the Bible. You might want to know about his actual history, his career, his origin. How was he created? His fall, his, his present activity, his future activity, his coming judgment. We're fresh out of time though, but the good news is if that strikes your interest and you want to learn more, a couple of months ago, I preached a whole sermon on it. After you know, his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, I preached a, a single sermon called A Biography of the Devil, where we traced his career. So if you weren't there, or if this strikes your interest, you can go download that sermon on our website and learn even more about the doctrine of the devil. For now, though, just the the few minutes we have left, a a few final thoughts of application as we consider demons, demonology, our response. Uh, 
And I'll give you just a few points to consider before we close. You know, first, don't overestimate Satan and demons and be fearful. Now, as a believer, you really have nothing to fear. Satan and demons, their power was conquered on the cross. Also, as believers, you're secured by the Spirit. You're protected by God. God will never let you out of his protected hands or turn you over to the enemy. So long as you're, you're genuine and firm in your faith, you've got nothing to fear. You have to remember, Satan and demons are not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. Their, their power is limited. Again, so long as you're firm in your faith, you have nothing to fear. But at the same time, don't underestimate Satan and demons and be arrogant. Because they are real. They can oppose believers. They can't steal your salvation, but they can attempt and afflict and hinder your usefulness to God. And so don't be arrogant toward their power. We are told to be sober, be alert, be firm in the faith. Just take all that seriously. Remember, even the archangel Michael, it says, did not revile Satan in arrogance. We, we don't want to be flippant toward these powers. They are real. Uh, we, we're going to avoid over-obsession or totally ignoring them, try and walk that middle ground. Don't overestimate, don't underestimate. And third, you know, don't fear possession or losing salvation. Believers are called God's possession. Right now, if you're in Christ, you are possessed, but not by an evil spirit. You're possessed by a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And there's no more room for a devil to possess you or a demon possess you. It's not possible in scripture. If you're a genuine believer, truly born again, you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible for you to be possessed by a demon now. God protects his believers. Christ abides in believers. The Holy Spirit abides in believers. All these reasons and more. Believers cannot be demon-possessed. You don't need to fear demon possession. There's some believers who get caught up in that and just distracted. You don't need to fear losing your salvation as if they can steal it from you. No, neither are possible. You need to read Romans 8, 31, 39. Remember, not even powers, rulers, demons can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ, so long as you're in Christ. Just a couple more. Don't attribute everything bad to demons. Don't attribute everything bad to demons. You know, contrary to some, they're, they're not the cause of every bad thing, of every sickness, of every disease. Are they still the cause of sickness and disease? I would say most certainly. Which ones? We have no idea. And we don't have any way of telling. God has not revealed to us. He's not given us eyes to see what good things angels are doing in our lives and what bad things demons are bringing about in our lives. We have no eyes to see. It's futile, empty speculation. You should avoid it. But we also know just the very fact that you know, not all sickness came from them. You shouldn't attribute everything to a demon and just avoid this over-obsession where some, like, I've got a headache, must be a demon. I need to rebuke the demon of headaches. I've got a backache, must be a demon. They're kind of looking for a demon under everything, it's just got to beware that, that over-obsession with them because the response doesn't matter. You know, for believers, we can never blame demons for our sinful behavior. Even think about our temptation. Is it possible for Satan and demons to tempt believers? Yes. 
But let's say you're being tempted by something you're tempted to sin. Can you tell me, can you prove that temptation is coming from a demon versus it's coming from the world or it's coming from your own flesh? How can you tell me which one's which? You can't. You have no way of knowing where it's actually coming from. Scripture never reveals. We're never told how to tell if this temptation is coming from our three enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. The response is the same. Stand firm in the truth. Pick up the shield of faith by which you may extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Whether it's your own flesh or Satan, it doesn't matter. We don't need to care. The response is the same. Stand firm in the faith. So lastly, just don't fall into spiritual warfare chaos. Again, some people see Christ's interaction with demons and think they should necessarily act the same way. But there's not a single instruction or command for believers in the church to bind, command, rebuke, or even talk to Satan and demons. It seems to have been part of the the gifting of apostles and prophets to discern the spirits and to do such a thing. But throughout the New Testament, we are not once ever commanded or instructed to cast out demons, rebuke demons, so forth. When the writers of the New Testament encounter problems in the church, they never say, cast out the demon of adultery or greed or anxiety. They just say, stop committing adultery. Put off greed and anxiety. And also, Paul did not tell Timothy to rebuke the demon of stomach pain. He told him, take a little medicine. Right? There, there are no apostles and prophets today, and uh, believers should not get obsessed with trying to cast out demons from everything. We're never told to do that, not told how to do that. We need to be careful. The Bible does give instruction on spiritual warfare because it's real. We have a lot to do. It's all found in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. And in short, it's all about what? Standing firm in the faith, right? Standing firm in the truth. It's all a, a, a truth war. Know the truth, believe it, own it, cherish it. That's how you wage spiritual warfare. You don't need this, you know, the, the chaos that's out there. Just cling to the truth. You're, you're in the fight. Satan's power over sin and death has already been conquered on the cross. Battles of spiritual temptation still exist, but believers can overcome by simply trusting God and relying on his truth. Whenever any believer is tempted to sin, whatever the cause, all you got to do is just recall God's truth, believe it, cling to it, and you will overcome. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And this gospel truth, this armor of God is all we need to wage warfare and to stand firm. And so let's do that. It's our closing thought. Let's now close in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for our study this evening. And it truly is fascinating. We perhaps know why our culture is so intrigued, fascinated by angels and demons. We are too. And they've run off in speculation. We see the chaos in our culture as they think of angels and demons. Uh, I, Lord, I pray you protect us from doing the same. May we not get carried away. But at the same time, may we not think nothing of these spiritual beings. You have created them for a purpose. Some good, some have fallen. You revealed some things, and I pray Uh, as our desires for all truth, we would be filled with the knowledge of your will regarding angels and demons. And as we learn about them, that we would rightly respond. And as as C.S. Lewis uh, would say, we would not think too much of them or too little of them. 
we, we do give you thanks. We give you praise, Lord, for the holy angels whom you have in so many ways we don't know. You've sent them out to render service to us. We know that in the kingdom, we, we'll, we'll play back the record and see how many countless times you, you use angels to deliver, to guard, to protect us. For that, we just give you the glory, Lord, because ultimately you're the God who protects and cares for your, your beloved. Then regarding the fallen angels, keep us free from their power. Deliver us from the evil one. Help us to just stand firm in the truth. By this, we will be preserved and delivered to be with us. We can rest assured greater is the one who is in us than the one who's in the world. May we just walk by the spirit and have no fear, but be firm in our faith. Enable us to do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.